let us know. Let's jump into Revelation chapter 9. And today we're looking at one of three woes, W-O-E, a, a woe. So I, I, I think it's helpful for us to understand what does that mean? What, is, what has that been biblically? What is a woe from a biblical standpoint? Not just here in Revelation, but throughout the entire uh, Bible. What, what does that word mean? And there's really nothing that special about the actual word in the original language. The word really is just a transitional type of word, a transitional statement. It's similar to alas, like, look, look at that thing, look at this thing. And I would even say, in, in a sense, it seems like it's kind of, uh, biblically, one of those things that's just kind of a sigh or maybe even a grunt, like an inaudible grunt, like this just sigh of, oh my goodness, you know? Uh, it's certainly a warning, and we've talked about that. These trumpet blasts in chapter uh, 8 and chapter 9 are warnings. They're a warning shot, a warning sound to let us know that a judgment is coming. Uh, something is coming that we need to be aware of and be prepared for and be uh, cognizant of so that we don't fall into uh, uh, what that judgment brings on us, that we can turn and change our lives and do something different and repent and be different. But it's that sigh or grunt, uh, this, ugh, you know, just, oh my goodness. I I'm reminded of Isaiah in Isaiah, when, in chapter 6, when he's met with the, the sheer vision of God, it's uh, Isaiah chapter 6, and it says, The glory of the Lord filled the temple, right? So the glory of the Lord is surrounding this man, and he just says, Oh my goodness. He says, Woe to me. And so what he's saying is like, Oh my goodness. I'm in a wrong place. Where, I, where am I? It's this... This grunt, this, oh, this, oh my goodness. And he realizes in that moment, placed in juxtaposition of to who God is and who he is, he realizes he's holy and I'm not. He's holy and I am unclean. And so he says, oh God, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And that's what's happening here in Revelation 9. We are met with the, the sheer magnitude and glory and honor and uh, God in all His glory, in all of His holiness, in all of His righteousness, in all of His transcendence. And the same thing is true. Oh my goodness, who is this God? You see, we, we sometimes make God too familiar. Now, I don't want to confuse us because we oftentimes deal in polarities, right? Our, our, our lives and the things in our life swing from one pendulum, uh, one side of the pendulum to the other. And then oftentimes with who God is, it's paradoxical to us. It doesn't seem to line up or be able to fit together at the same time. And so, yes, God is transcendent high in all of his glory, yet he is near and approachable and close. 
But we err. We make mistakes if all we ever focus on is how loving and soft and kind and all these things about God and not hold up at the very same time the tension of the fact that He is holy, mighty, glorious, creator and deserving of all honor, glory, and praise. He is both of those at the same time. Now, I will say sometimes we focus too much or some of us focus too much also on his transcendence and holiness and judgment and wrath and fail to realize, no, he is gracious and kind and loving. And one of the things I've tried to do this entire series is to hold both of those up to the same level at all times because in the nature of God, the character of God, they don't vary. They don't wane. One doesn't wane while the other comes up. It, they are balanced completely at all times. But we err if we only focus on one or the other. Even Jesus himself in the New Testament smoke, spoke woes. These woes, these, these, these transitional alas statements, these warning statements over several towns telling them they would have a worse judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah in other places because of their unrepentant hearts. And that's what, what this comes down to. This is not the judgment of God against innocent bystanders. This is the judgment of God against a kingdom that rails against him day in and day night, day, uh, day in and day in I lost the saying. All the time. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> this is the judgment of God being placed on people that have been given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to trust in Him, to believe in Him, and yet continue in their unrepentant nature, living for themselves and themselves only. What we see in a woe is a moment that was inevitably coming because of a pattern of disobedience. We should not be surprised that this is the end result of constant disobedience and constant uh, railing against God in this kingdom of this world and its ruler of, uh, of this earthly kingdom, namely Satan. We shouldn't be surprised that this is the end result. This is the thing that would come at the end of all this. We shouldn't be surprised by that. It's inevitable. And I want to try to put this on a level that I certainly understand, and I hope maybe it will help you as well. Uh, I have four children, in case anyone didn't know that. Uh, I talk about it a lot, so you probably do. And being a parent is challenging. Being a parent to four children is, is challenging. And uh, uh, particularly uh, as they get older, I'm finding it's just harder. I take them back to babies. They're, you know, I held my little nephew yesterday, and I just said, goo goo gaga, and he laughed at me. And it was awesome. There was no back talk. There was no <laughs> bad behavior, right? He's just like a few months old, and he just giggled. And it was fun. And it's like, oh, man, maybe we should just go back to that and just stay there. It gets harder. It gets harder because new challenges arise. And the thing is, is with parenting, I find myself 
constantly warning, don't do that or there will be a consequence. Don't do that or there will be a consequence. Don't do that. I'm going to have to do something. And I'm this kind of guy that wants to give you all the opportunities available. But yet, they don't listen. And so I get to this moment where it's this grunt of, oh my goodness, I have to do what I said I would do, or they'll just run over me, right? And so it gets to that moment where I say, well, you have disobeyed again and again and again, and I gave you every chance, every chance to correct the behavior, and you didn't. And so now I have to do what I said I would do. We understand it in that context because we realize those little books, and eventually we get to that point where it's like, you get over here, we're getting, you know, it's not as like, oh man, I have to, it's like, you get over here, you know. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. Maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about. By your laughter, I think you probably do. And in a way, that is not, not to minimize God and his character to our level, but it's a, a human example to help us see what's happening with him and his judgment. He's given every opportunity, and yet disobedience continues, unrepentance continues. And we get to this point that is inevitable. It's inevitable. A woe isn't something God only reserves for the, the wretched kingdom of this world either, and the ones who bow down to the feet of its king, but even his own followers in Isaiah chapter 3 1 through 11. I want to read this because I want you to see this idea of unrepentance that leads God to act in this way. Isaiah chapter 3, 1 through 11. It's going to be on the screen. You can turn there if you want, but keep a finger at Revelation 9 because that's where we'll be. Note this, the Lord God of armies is about to remove from Jerusalem and from Judah every kind of security. The entire supply of bread and water, heroes and warriors, judges and prophets, fortune tellers and elders, commanders of 50 and dignitaries, counselors, cunning magicians and necromancers. I will make youths their leaders and unstable rulers will govern them. The people will oppress one another, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will act arrogantly toward the old and the worthless toward the honorable. A man will even seize his brother in his father's house, saying, You have a cloak. You be our leader. The heap, this heap of rubble will be under your control. On that day he will cry out, saying, I'm not a healer. I don't even have food or clothing in my house. Don't make me the leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because they have spoken and acted against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Defying. Remember that word, defiance. To look, the look on their faces testifies against them. And like Sodom, they flaunt their sin. They do not conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought disaster on themselves. Woe to them. They have brought disaster on themselves. Tell the righteous that it will go well for them, for they will eat the fruit of their labor. Woe to the wicked. It will go badly for them, for what they have done will be done. To them, You see, God gave every chance, and they continued in disobedience, and he said, the inevitable result is this. Even the Israelites had done wrong, and God gave them a warning of what was to come because of their never-ceasing disobedience. In Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, we, we see three consequences 
revealed in this last moment, this grunt moment, this sigh moment, this woe moment, this grunt of heaven describing what must happen, what is the natural consequence of the disobedience of the kingdom at hand, this earthly kingdom toward God by the kingdom of this world and its inhabitants. Will you read with me Revelation chapter 9, 1 through 12. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. The key for the shaft of the abyss was given to him. He opened the shaft of the abyss, and smoke came up out of the shaft, like uh, out of the great furnace, so that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the shaft. Then locusts came out of the smoke onto the earth, and power was given to them like the power that scorpions have on earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. They were not permitted to kill them, but were to torment them for five months. Their torment is like the torment caused by a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The appearance of the locusts, this is just horrifying, was like horses prepared for battle. Something like golden crowns was on their heads. Their faces were like human faces. Remember, it's all, <laughs> uh, it's all um, symbolism, so thank goodness. Can you imagine horse-sized human locusts? Yeah. They had hair like women's hair. The teeth were like lion's teeth. They had chests like iron breastplates. The sound of their wings was like the sound of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. And they had tails and stingers like scorpions so that with their tails they had the power to harm people for five months. They had as their king the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and his Greek name is the name Apollyon, which just means destruction and destroy. The first woe has passed. There are still two more woes to come after this. It's this gut-wrenching moment to say this is the inevitable end to what you have done. And it's against the king of this earth and the king of this world, namely Satan and those who live their lives according to his ways. The first thing that we see here is that the destructive nature of the kingdom of this world, surprise, leads to destruction or receives destruction for itself. It's not a surprise that the destructive nature of the king of this world will receive destruction. The kingdom of this world has as its leader and king the one who inhabits the pit or the abyss. In Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, we see who this is. I want you to see this in Isaiah chapter 14. Who is this? You'll, you'll read it and you'll know automatically who it is. And that's why I've already said his name. But would you put that on the screen? Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 says, Shining morning star, how you've fallen from the heavens. You destroyer of nations. You've been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you will be brought down to Sheol into the deepest regions of the, of the pit or the abyss. It's the same word 
in both places. That is Satan. In this moment, Satan's released. Abaddon, Apollyon, his name is destruction. And that shouldn't surprise us because Peter says, be wary, be aware. He's a roaring lion seeking who may, who may devour. Elsewhere it says that he seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. Destruction is in his bones. And this is the foundation his kingdom is built upon. Destruction. And so it should be no surprise that when he is given the opportunity to come forward, it's under the name of Apollyon or Abaddon, which mean destruction and, destru and to destroy. And it should be not a surprise to us that his kingdom is characterized by destruction and that what awaits any who are not sealed and remain a part of that kingdom will receive destruction. It shouldn't surprise us. We've talked about this all along. We've talked about these two opposing kingdoms, the kingdom of God, the true kingdom, the one that's been existent all along, but then this kingdom that was built around it, a shell of what Jesus offers, a, a mimic kingdom that Satan says, no, I'm trying to build my own throne. I'm trying to build my own way. I'm trying to build my own uh, kingdom so that I can be on high and be even higher than the most high. And when Jesus finally releases his himself and his kingdom and comes into his glory. And we saw that earlier in Revelation chapter, uh, in the book of Revelation, we see that that kingdom just explodes the other one, that when Jesus' kingdom finally comes to fruition and is coming, as John indicates, it blows and obliterates the kingdom of destruction. And that's what is happening in all of this. Destruction breeds destruction. And we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we don't hitch our trailer to this world and its ideals because they will ultimately lead to death and destruction. The second thing that we see This is a really exciting uh, message. I'm going to go home really encouraged today, Derek, right? It's a joke. It's, it's, it's hard. It's hard stuff. The second thing we see is that the celebration of sinful rebellion will be destroyed. We live in a world that wants to celebrate sinfulness. We love rebellion and lift it high as a society. The warning here is that all of that will pass away. It is not lasting. It will be destroyed. Notice the ones who are spared from this torment and destruction that's about to be released are the ones that are a part of God's kingdom, sealed by him. The ones who said, no, I don't want to live according to this world. I don't want to hitch my trailer to that. I want to hitch my life to those ideals. I want to live my life for Christ. Trusting in Christ, doing what we, we, we so visibly saw today in the baptistry waters to say, no, I am dying to myself. And so that Christ can raise me to new life. And when Jesus does that in our lives, he did that for me as a six-year-old boy on my knees with my granny who read a Bible uh, storybook to me. And I said, look, granny, I want to know that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And she led me to believe in Jesus Christ as a six-year-old. In that moment, the Holy Spirit sealed me 
protecting me from judgment to come, protecting me for so many moments, but for this moment as well. And friends, we must trust in Jesus and leave this world behind because it leads to destruction. Those who have trusted, trusted Jesus for salvation are sealed by the Holy Spirit and are reserved for glory. We're reserved for glory, not destruction. So the antithesis of this are those who have placed their trust in themselves or the king of this world and will suffer the natural consequences because of that. They've made a conscious choice. They were presented with an option that would lead to life and glory, and they chose the one that led to destruction. But as we have discussed, and this is where we do see hope, we do see encouragement. If Jesus continues to tarry in his return, then there is still a chance. If there is breath in our lungs, we have an opportunity to turn from the ways of this world and turn to Christ and find his loving arms and run from our sin and run to him. It's that picture of the father mentioned in Luke 15 who sees his rebellious son far away off and runs to him with open arms, saying, come home, come home. Friends, Jesus says the same thing to you today. Come to my loving arms. And he forgives our most egregious sins. The third thing that we see is that the toleration of evil will receive evil's torment. I was reading um, to prepare for this, and one of the authors I read said he didn't want to read verses 5 through 7, and I know why. It's just hard. But the thing that we see here is that evil tolerated leads to the torment of evil's kind. It's the natural consequence. It's like, what, what do people say? Don't play with snakes because you're going to get bit. It's the same idea. These terrifying horse-sized locusts with human faces and lion's teeth come to deliver the consequences for all who continue to embrace the kingdom of this world and its leader. What's their job? Just to torment for five months. Here's the thing. Torment awaits anyone not found in Christ in these moments. Whether we want to believe it or not, torment is what awaits us. And so let's get out from under that and confess our sins and stop worshiping the world we live in. And what is the only thing that can protect us? The ones who were sealed were protected. There is a way to avoid the torment to come. And it's simply to trust Jesus. I already alluded to it a moment ago, but there is no greater example for us to see on the regular. We've seen it five weeks in a row. We've baptized five weeks in a row. Man, I hope we can make it six. That'd be amazing if God just works and moves and continues to work and move. But in that picture of baptism, what you see, we saw Devin today standing there, dead in her trespasses and sins. That's what it represents. 
And she died with Christ, was buried with Christ, and raised to life. And that's why we say that, buried in his likeness, raised to life in him. And when we trust in Jesus, we're raised to life. The old way is gone. The new way has come, and we are sealed for his glory. We celebrate another way as Christians. We do it once a month here. We do that so that we can remind ourselves again and again of this beautiful picture of what Christ has done. It's the Lord's Supper. It's communion. Just a moment, our deacons are going to come, and we're going to take communion today. Why do we do that? Why do we do it five, or why do we do it every month? Why do we do it the first week of every month? Why do we do that? To remind ourselves, Christ died for you, for me. His body was broken. His blood was spilled so that we could commune with his death. And in communing with his death, identifying with his death, we are saved and resurrected to new life, to a new covenant in him, a new promise to say, he will never leave us or forsake us. He will seal us and keep us and hold us. That's what that represents for you, for me. When we've trusted Christ as our Savior, what he did on the cross and his blood spilled for you and me saves us and gives us new life and a new promise that cannot be broken by anything. So I want to pray our deacons are going to come and as we take that cup take, and then we take that bread, take a moment to remember to confess your sins before the Lord and say Lord I'm sorry forgive me because we don't want to take it lightly but as we take those pieces we remind ourselves of what he's done and how he's provided for us salvation Lord we love you we praise you God we thank you for all you've done for all you're going to do Move in our hearts and our lives in this moment, God. Help us to remember and to see. Help us to trust you and to turn from the world and all that it has to offer us and turn to you and find life where we would have found death elsewise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This time, if my deacons will come, if you'll come and sit here.